Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're speaking with Dr Danielle Harris about how police checks alone are not enough to protect our children from sexual harm. In this interview, Dr Harris urges governments to put in place a range of measures that would work together to prevent pedophiles from gaining access to work in childcare centres. These include safer recruitment processes, the importance of better design for childcare centres so they are as open plan as possible to prevent abuse, being aware of red flags such as overly familiar conduct by staff and the importance of sharing suspicious behaviour between childcare centres as part of reducing risk. Danielle, thank you for joining us on the Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Danielle, really looking to your expertise today, I think it would be safe to say a lot of parents and carers are pretty panic-stricken, really, after the news recently of a former childcare worker being charged with more than 1,600 child abuse offences. I think we all think, what can we do to protect our kids or where has this system gone wrong? So really just hoping that you can help us walk through this today. Is it this blue card system? Or do we need to tighten that up? I think... First of all, it's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. The guilt and the, the responsibility for what has happened needs to rightly be placed at the feet of the individual who, who was responsible for these offences. But there are definitely things that everybody, as in everybody in the community, not just everybody in childcare or everybody in the blue card system, There really is a role for everybody in keeping kids safe. I know that there's a famous quote, you know, that it takes a village to to raise a child. It also takes a village for a child to be abused and it takes a village to keep a child safe from being abused. This really is on all of us and there are roles that everybody can play in, you know, whether you're a parent or a childcare worker or a government employee or whatever, there is something for everybody to do and it's on all of us. So in Queensland, I've been reading about how we've got one of the strictest blue card systems where basically you've got to have this blue card to work with children, which this former childcare centre worker did have clearance. So do we need to make that more stringent if, if that's not working? It's quite interesting. You're, you're right. Queensland does have one of the most stringent systems, but I think it it gives us a bit of a false sense of security because 
people need to, I, I think it's important to understand what a blue card is and what a blue card is not so a blue card is a, a working with children check is a point in time indicator of the absence of an officially recorded criminal history on the day that you applied for said blue card and that's not a substitute for contacting personal and professional references it's not a substitute for finding out why the person left their previous employer and doing the kind of due diligence that we would expect, you know, uh, an organization to do. So I have heard just sort of anecdotally people say, oh, but, but, but he's got a blue card. It's really important to clarify that a blue card just means that you didn't have a criminal history the day that you applied for the blue card. So police checks are just the start, really? That's right. Police checks are just the start. Police checks also mean that you weren't caught. One of the things that has stood out to me from 25 years of interviewing men who have been convicted of sexually abusing children is the overwhelming number of them for whom their neighbors and employers and family friends and whatever say, gosh, he was such a nice guy. I never suspected a thing. I can't imagine, you know, that, and it just that really, I think, lends a really great picture of, of what grooming is, you know, that he seemed like, of course, he seemed like such a nice guy. Look at this. Like, of course, he seemed like such a nice guy. That's what, that's what grooming is. For me, I think one of the things that in the work that I've done in, in terms of preventing child sexual abuse and what can we look for and people mostly at dinner parties are wanting to know about a profile of the kind of person that would do such a thing. And I, I just that there isn't one. A, a profile is a difficult thing to, to, to draw on. I wish that it was that easy. I wish that it was easy. I wish that we could say, this guy will do it and this guy won't, but it's not that simple. What we really need to do is focus on behaviors and focus outside the individual. So some of the things in all of the cases I've looked at over the years, one of the things that stands out to me in this case is, is a prime example, is number of residential moves. So residential mobility, Moving to a different state, moving yeah. moving jobs as yeah. well. Relocating, like the, a couple of the cases that I that I've read about. You know, it, most of my work is in the U.S., but a couple of the cases there. You know, all of the the transcripts and all of the letters of recommendation will say he was such a great tennis coach. He used to pick the kids up. He dropped them home, and that's really you know that helps out vulnerable parents who are working, and especially you know single parents who are doing it tough. Oh, if you wouldn't mind dropping him home after the practice that would be great all of these opportunities for individualized unsupervised time with kids that should be a red flag the opportunity you know offering more time for individual tutoring I'm happy to stay back and, and look after him and whatever all of those kinds of things I think are red flags and the Frequent relocations, I think, is a risk factor for me or a, a, a red flag for me. It, it would indicate almost that just as they feel they're about to be caught, they're moving on. Yes, yeah. And I mean, we don't want to make too many assumptions, but I, I think for me that the, what we would call the criminological term residential mobility means that somebody is moving around a lot. And to me, that kind of transience is a red flag. So for example, you know, the swimming coach that was such an amazing swimming coach and everybody loved him, but he had four jobs in two years or the tennis coach who worked at nine different places in four years, 
that's a lot of different places. Most people don't move that often. Mm. It's okay to, to be very clear. It's okay to work part-time in multiple places. If you're cobbling together a full-time job, mm. I, I, that, that's fine. But if you, if, if you call the previous employer and yeah, it was really weird. He was great. Everybody loved him, but he just left suddenly. I think that another red flag would be, you know, revolutionize the way that we do a certain thing, you know, had ownership over the organization in some way, was able to control maybe access to records or access, you know, which turns into maybe access to photographs or something like that. But the the thing that for me stands out the most is but he left suddenly, unexpectedly. There was no explanation or there was some generic family reason. It's really rare for somebody to have four jobs in two years or six moves in four years. So while the blue card is a, is a good starting point, as this person doesn't have a criminal history, uh, a reported criminal history, what I think is very important is finding out, you know, it, it's it's not a substitute for contacting personal and professional referees and finding out why they left their last employer. And if the person has a history of seven or eight, six month stints, I think that that's a warning sign. So could this point to even possible reforms for childcare systems or for you know sporting associations? Should there be some sort of central check, basically, the importance of checking each person's the, the, how much they're moving and their history with work that is obviously slipping through the cracks a little bit yeah I think the the other thing that that is just as important is to not you know begrudge everybody a transient lifestyle you know there are lots of reasons why somebody want to travel around four different states you know and and in four years because they they want to see the country or something I, I so I wouldn't want to make us on the other end of, of things I wouldn't want to make us you know extra concerned if somebody left their job after six months because their mum really did have cancer and they really did have to stay with her or whatever right my point is just that we need to not rely on a criminal history check the criminal history check first of all one in five people have a have a cr- criminal history one in five people have a criminal history. I don't think that people realize just how common it is to have a minor traffic offense from, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. One of the other concerns that I have about the, the way that the blue card system is run at the moment is that people are precluded from having a blue card because of a minor criminal offense. So there are definitely cases of, of grandparents, you know, grandmothers at, at, uh, of my local, of my child's school, grandparents of children that go to my child's school, where they, they're not allowed to volunteer in the tuck shop because they have a DUI from 1987. I mean, that, that's an isolated event that has, that bears no relationship to their risk to children. And that's excluding a, a huge population of people from being able to, to serve their community in really meaningful ways. So I wouldn't like to see us go over the top in the, in, in the other direction. I think it's just important that we consider all of the things. A blue card isn't a guarantee that nothing's gonna happen. So what you're saying, Danielle, to me is that, that it's a multi-factor approach. There is not one, we, we are all so desperate to find one thing that can fix this, that makes our kids safe, but it's actually having a suite of things in place, yes? 
Yeah, I, I think mm. it's one of the, the really important parts to this is that it, it really is a multi-factor issue. It's something, you know, it takes a lot of things to coalesce and come together like a perfect storm, if you will, mm. for something like this to occur. In prevention science, we have what's called the Swiss cheese analogy. So if you think of a slice of Swiss cheese with holes in it, you know, one, if, if that's one approach uh, on its own isn't going to be enough but if you layer it with a couple of other approaches you'll you'll get to a solid piece of cheese so you know there's something we can we can the blue cards is is one slice I guess parents being able to talk to their children and be able to use the right language if children are old enough to experience it they are old enough to talk about it I think so what does that mean? How, how young would you be teaching children to use the correct words for our anatomy? From the very beginning, the same way that you point out to a six-month-old, where are your eyes? Where is your nose? Where are your elbows? You can still be using the right words at that age. So we should be calling it a vagina. Yes. Calling it a penis. Yes. We need to use words like vagina and penis the same time that we're talking about where, you know, where your nose is and where your eyes are and where your mouth is and where your elbow is. Why is that important? It's important because it gives our children a language to be able to describe what's, describe what's happening to them, to, to you know. I'll give you an example. When when my daughter was 14 months old, um, I taught her sign language. And so uh, she was pre-verbal until she was about two and a half. And I picked her up from the the nanny. The first time I'd ever dropped her off at the nanny, I picked her up and she was in the stroller and she kept signing to me, diaper boo-boo, diaper boo-boo. And I remember thinking like, oh, oh my gosh, this is this is like, this is what I've trained for, right? Like I was very, very scared. What what does this mean? And I opened up a little onesie and she just kept very clearly, she was 14 months old, she couldn't speak, but she was telling me that she had a diaper boo-boo. I opened up her onesie and she had the wettest, most (laughs) disgusting wedgie you could possibly imagine. It just looked so uncomfortable. And I remember just being so grateful in that moment Mm -hmm. that she was able to, without any tears, she was able to tell me that she was uncomfortable and she was able to tell me where she was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she has always had a language of being able to, whether it's diaper or bottom or vagina or whatever, you know, we've we've Mm -hmm. worked on language over time. But even at that time, she was able to, you know, tell me, she was able to tell me when she had nappy rash. So it's important to have that preventative approach so that, you know, if something awful does happen, but a child can vividly describe that and not call it a, a woo-woo or a, yeah. Yeah, whatever. I mean, everything everything south of my waist growing up was down there. And yes. That, that wasn't particularly useful. It's quite possible. It's quite common, though, I think, for there our was generation. A lot, there, was, there was a yeah. lot of area that, that was, was, was covered by down there. You know, I think, gosh, what if I had a sore knee or a sore <laughs> I would have been sorry it's down there. Yeah, it's um that that wasn't particularly useful. I think another, you know, if, if we're, we're just going to do like the, the, the three top things, it's if your child is young, is old enough to experience it, they're old enough to speak about it, and they're old enough to learn the language to understand it. So we need to have a, a language, what, whatever that looks like in your household, but a, a way that you can speak with your children. We need to focus on behaviors, not people. So 
yes, he seemed like such a nice guy, but he was giving inappropriate gifts or she was always wanting to drop my son home after volleyball practice or whatever, you know, any of those behaviors, anything that looks like grooming, giving extravagant gifts when it's not birthdays, attending birthday parties, really clear boundaries. My daughter wanted the kindy teacher to go to her birthday party and you very kindly explained that Marissa has other things to do on the weekends and she's not one of our friends. She's your kindy teacher and she doesn't come to birthday parties. So boundaries. Yeah, boundaries are really important, really clear boundaries. We see Marissa on, on the days that you go to kindy and, uh, and that's her job. I think having really clear boundaries, a language that you can use to explain this sort of thing that isn't fear-based. And then the other part, which I think we're slowly learning, is just to get rid of stranger danger because it has done us no good at all. How's that? The majority of, of children who are abused are abused by somebody in their circle of trust Obviously, when uh, a stranger abducts a child, it makes the news. It makes the news every time it happens because it happens so rarely. When it makes the news, it shakes us to our core because it's every person's nightmare, but it happens extraordinarily rarely. If we want to prevent the majority of child sexual abuse, we can do so by focusing on the places where it happens the most often rather than focus on, on the people focusing on the places and the behaviors. And so childcare centers are going to be a place where this, where this occurs. I'm just thinking of the, the Swiss cheese model again too, because that's where design aspects come into play too, isn't it? Like the importance of an open plan yeah. um, setting for and a childcare I'm, center. I must say as, as somebody who has been a long time proponent of what we would call situational crime prevention, having people speaking in general conversations about line of sight, better lighting, glass in window, you know, windows in doors and, and, um, and no opportunities for making cubbies and open plan and all that sort of thing. It's really exciting to me because we've been saying that in the, the ivory tower research for a really long time. You know, we could design out crime by having better lighting. We really design out crime by having a line of sight. So this is important for us to, to, to think about and implement going forward to, as a preventative approach. And it also, I think, one of the other important parts about focusing on open plan and focusing on situational crime prevention is that it takes our focus away from the guy in the jacket with the moustache on the, you know, sunglasses. The particular guy with the raincoat on, because it's not, it's not that guy. It's that guy in the movies, but in real life, I mean, women do it too. That's, that's another point that I, that I think is only recently being acknowledged by the community more generally. Focus on the person, you know, that makes for a great TV documentary and, and it's really interesting to think about the why and, you know, who would do such a thing and all the profiling stuff. It's fascinating. But the why questions don't help us stop it. The why questions help us understand the mind of a killer or whatever. But if we ask, if we shift our focus to how it happened, not why it happened, if we shift our focus to how it happened, then we can get to preventing it. Then we can get to actually looking at this happened. How did this happen? This happened because there was a closed 
area where you know he was able to make a cubby or this happened because she was able to drop this this kid back and forth to volleyball practice repeatedly and and had all of this unsupervised contact and was able to to engage in this abuse for for months or years or whatever without anybody knowing and everybody thought she was just helping out by driving him home um, so I, I think if we focus on the behaviors and we focus on the how we can we can get a better shot at prevention. Giving our children the tools to communicate any concerns that they have from a really young age and also for these childcare centres or for organisations to have really clear lines of communication too, mm. that if you have any concerns mm. that you can raise it with them. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Um, I think being able to have an open line of communication with, with everybody in the room. Recently, my, my daughter joined a, a after school activity and and I asked about safety and, and talked to the people that, that, that run it, you know, and, and I explained what, what my research is in and said, you know, look, I don't want to freak anybody out, but I just want you to know that I'm, I'm one of those parents. And they said, oh, all of our volunteers are parents and all of our volunteers have blue cards. And I said, almost all of the pedophiles that I've interviewed have been parents too. That being a parent doesn't make you immune from having a sexual attraction to children. It's still rare, but it's it's about five to ten percent of the population in in various studies are revealing an attraction to children. So the fact that all of your volunteers are parents doesn't instill confidence in me necessarily. What would in that scenario? What are the things that would be better? Hmm, that's a good question. What would instill confidence in me? I think relying on the fact that everybody who volunteers with us is a parent is not quite the same as saying we take all disclosures very seriously we make sure that no volunteers have time with the children unsupervised we make sure that there's every that we have a buddy system it's that multi-factor approach again it's yeah. not you having a blue card is no great reassurance if that's yes. the only thing you've got yeah having a blue card being a parent is is not a guarantee of safety i think that would be quite shocking for people to realize but there you go that's the research it shows that yeah mm. yeah well the majority of people have children mm. the the majority of the population has children mm. so um yeah yeah and if we're talking about those rarest of the rare occasions where somebody has groomed a series of people in a series of institutions over a series of years yeah we're talking I'm I am certain that this person uh, is the kind of person that will happily you know make you a cup of tea and be very inviting and and be very well manicured and very well spoken and do all of the things that you would expect a really well-meaning kind person to do so I think going forward we just need that we need to be aware that there's all those different alarm bells in a way. It's not just one thing. We shouldn't be completely paranoid, as you say, yes. but if we're aware of all of those factors in place, we, we can be more, we can hopefully be safer. My intent is definitely not to freak everybody out and have everybody be paranoid that every single person is, is you know, a potential rapist or child molester. So it's actually not about being paranoid. It's about being empowered with this knowledge, Danielle. Would that be a good summary? That's that's absolutely it, yeah. We don't need to be paranoid of, of stranger danger. We don't need to be paranoid that every single person you're going to leave your kids with is, is you know, destined to, to engage in this. But we can be empowered to speak up 
and and believe survivors safety is everybody's responsibility and it's everybody's ability in a, a recent study i read that you know nine out of ten people completely agree that child sexual abuse is something that we should all be concerned with Um, but also that about eight out of ten people don't know what to do and don't think that it's their that it's their responsibility or understand that it's important but don't think that they have the capacity to 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 talk about it with their kids if there is a child in your life it's your responsibility and you absolutely have the capacity because it's on all of us thanks so much for joining us daniel harris thank you so much for having me And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.